in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Let's read together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God add his blessing to the reading in the hearing of his word. Now, I want you to get the picture. Um, first, what Matthew is doing. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. He starts with a genealogy, which is a very Hebrew thing to do. Uh, in Genesis, we see this constantly. When it, whenever the story shifts from one character to another, there's this thing called a told dot, or in the generations of, is how we translate it. All throughout the Old Testament, this happens, but primarily in Genesis uh, through Deuteronomy, in the in the generations of, or these are the generations of, that's the Hebrew tol dot. And that's a very Hebrew method of saying, this is where this story begins. This is who this story is about. Here's the new main character. So Matthew begins with a genealogy. And as you well know, that genealogy points to Jesus as the, the Davidic king, as the son who's going to sit on the throne, son of David, who's going to sit on the throne forever. He's going to be on this throne forever. He's going to be king forever. And he is going to rule forever. And so he points that out. And the way that he points it out is really beautiful. He's got this kind of Hebrew poetry. Where there's 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Smack in the middle. That middle generation is David's generation. David uh, in Hebrew numbers would add up to 14. That's uh, 464, right? That's the fourth letter, the sixth letter, the fourth letter, and so 14. So you've got David right in the middle, and then you've got Jesus being announced at the beginning and the end, and you've got the king has come. This is apt for us in that we're studying Ezra and Nehemiah, and at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, what are they lacking? They lack a prophet, priest, king that will come and live among them and be among them. And so Matthew uh, walks in, walks you into the story of Jesus with Jesus as king. I would argue that Luke walks you into the story with Jesus as priest. And I would argue that Mark walks you into the story with Jesus as prophet. You've got prophet, priest, and king in the first three Gospels. Um, so Matthew shows up and, and Jesus is king. And so right here at the beginning, that's the, that's the focus. And the announcement of Jesus is he is going to be the Davidic king. Second uh, Samuel 7. He's going to be the Davidic king who's going to sit on the throne forever. Now, we come to this story that immediately follows the genealogy, and it says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ 
took place as follows. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So, this story of Jesus begins with an awkward situation. I want you to, to get this. Uh, betrothal was a legal thing. This is an awkward situation. Uh, and just put yourself in their shoes, right? Mary's probably very young. Uh, I don't want to speculate to an age, but she's a teenager. Joseph is a grown man. He's got a business. This is, this is a normal age gap in that time period. He's, a, he's probably uh, early 20s, maybe. She's a teenager. He's early 20s. It's not huge. It's not a 50-year-old trying to marry a teenager. It's somebody who's in his you know, 20s trying to marry a teenager. And this teenage girl has been betrothed to him. So there's been an agreement that's been made with the father. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone to uh, ask for a woman's hand in marriage or if you've ever thought about asking for a woman's hand in marriage. But this is a very awkward thing in general, just difficult. And uh, I remember going to do this with my father-in-law, and I'll tell you the story at lunch, um, but it was very intimidating. Uh, and I remember it very well, and I'm still kind of intimidated by that story. So, and he's right there, and don't tell him. So he's, this, uh, this act that, that has happened has already been a difficult negotiation, and there's been, there's been family negotiations, families are connected here, they've had investigations, this is a very, this is a Hebrew culture, so it's a very immersive culture into the family, these are two families that are now intertwined, Mary is his wife, but not yet, she's his wife, but not yet, she's betrothed to him, which is a legally binding contract, and so there's this awkward situation that begins. I want to just clarify a couple things. Joseph does not know that this is the Holy Spirit yet. Joseph does not know that this is the Holy Spirit. Joseph is unaware that Mary has had a visit from an angel that told her, you're going to be pregnant with a kid, and she's sung the Magnificat. She, he's unaware of these things. He's, he's unaware. He, he doesn't know. He wasn't there. He hasn't heard. He is caught in an awkward situation before they come together. So before they come together, she's found or discovered to be pregnant. This word found here is where we get our word Eureka from. Surprise. Like, Eureka. Like this is this is the idea that he he may not have understood. There may not have been an awareness here. There may not it may have been somebody may have come to him and been like, hey Joseph, have you talked to Mary? Because she's found to be with child. She's discovered to be with child. Now she may have told him. Like we, don't, we don't have the ins and outs. But the author here is emphasizing the fact that Joseph is caught off guard. She's discovered to be with child. This is very, very awkward. This is extremely awkward. Maybe she started showing signs of pregnancy. And one of his friends kind of picked up on it and was like, Hey, have you talked to your betrothed? Have you have you talked to her? Have you have you gone to see her? I mean, she's getting sick every morning. You know, have you? She's got weird taste buds all of a sudden. She's no longer drinking Dr Pepper and now wants pickles all the time. Like this, 
What's she's always wanting salty stuff. Like what's going on? Have you talked to her? Have you talked to her family? There's something weird happening. People are noticing. And Joseph is um, is caught off guard. Somehow she's discovered. She may have told him. The author's writing it this way on purpose so you understand. Joseph is caught off guard. She's found to be with child. Now, Matthew ties this to Isaiah 7.14 almost immediately. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is what we call a prophecy with a dual meaning. In Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies this, and he is talking about his own son, too. Um, he's talking about his son being born as well. But there's a dual meaning here. There's the first meaning of Isaiah talking about what's going to happen with his people, and then Jesus as well. And we know that because Matthew says this is about Jesus. And I just want to take a moment. The virgin birth matters. The virgin birth matters. This Virgin birth matters. I had a professor in seminary who told me that the virgin birth didn't matter. And the way that he did it was this. He said, if you got saved, remember, I was at Baylor University, so a lot of uh, very Christianized campus. Everybody grew up in church, and um, which was foreign to me because I grew up, I, I went to high school in the Northeast, and so it wasn't normal for you to grow up in church. It wasn't even normal for you to go to church. And so we sat in this class, and there's a classroom, 35 or so students, and he says, how many of you got saved before you were uh, 10 to 8 to 10 years old. And everybody in class, you know, most of the people in class raised their hand. And he said, how many of you knew what a virgin was before you were 8 to 10 years old? And every hand goes down except mine. My dad was a gynecologist, obstetrician. You can figure that out for yourself. And so I had my hand up. And so he uh, said, see? And he looked at me kind of weird, like, okay. And then he said, see? The virgin birth has nothing to do with your salvation. No, no, you're right. It's right it's, that's a, that is a question that demands an immediate response. Wrong. And he got that immediate response from me, too. No. No, the virgin birth matters. And here's why the virgin birth matters. Because the virgin birth, if Jesus wasn't born free from sin, then there's no way he could atone for mine. He needed to be born free from sin. Not only that, but Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, The seed of the woman. Will crush that snake. This is a prophecy that Jesus said from the beginning. If it was of, if he was born of a man, then he is not the seed of the woman. He is not our salvation. Just a cool side note: seed of the woman. Women don't have seed. That's miraculous in and of itself. It's also the reason that you don't need an immaculate conception doctrine. Uh, that's a side note. We can talk about that at lunch. But the immaculate conception doesn't have to exist. The, the immaculate conception is the idea that Mary was born free of sin. That doesn't have to be there. That's a, a faulty logical, a faulty logic doctrine. Um, but we can talk about that at lunch. That's not here nor there. If you want to talk about that, just make a little note and then bring it up later. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, uh, the laws of betrothal are pretty severe in this situation. When a woman was found to be with child or has found to no longer be a virgin and she was betrothed, two things could happen. And the first one and the most, the one that is actually said they're supposed to do is stoning. She is supposed to be dragged out, tried and stoned. 
And the man that did it is also supposed to be dragged out, tried, and stoned. This is an abomination before the Lord. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, particularly verses 20, 20, uh, particularly verses 20 and 21, but verses 13 through 27 talk about the laws of betrothal. Betrothal was effectively a legal status. Betrothal was a legal status. This is something that is legally binding. He is married without the benefits of marriage. So this is his wife. Uh, He does not yet have to take care of her in his home. He's supposed to be building starting to build his home in this time period. He's supposed to be preparing the way for her. And then for a year after they married, he's supposed to finish building his home. Uh, how would you like that? A year-long honeymoon. That's how they. That's how they did it. I mean, it was a working honeymoon in that they're building their home together, but they uh, they would be together for a year after they were married to build their life together. Um, betrothal was effectively a legal status. Betrothals typically lasted less than a year. It's typically twelve months is the max, basically. And culturally, this is just the way that things worked then. It was less than a year, and so. What I want, the reason I bring this up is because this happened real fast. This pregnancy happened real fast. Um, and we know it happened real fast because there's only a year time period here, and they are married, and the baby is born. The baby's born after they get married, right? So this, is, this happens fast. I want you to understand this happens real quick. Joseph is caught off guard in this awkward, awkward situation, and this happens real fast. And you gotta, you gotta understand that there's a lot of shame and honor going on in this culture, honor shame culture, in which Joseph could lose his livelihood. He could lose his reputation. He could lose his standing in synagogue. Cause remember, religion and politics to the Jews were tied together. He could lose his, his reputation. He could lose his livelihood. He could lose his job. He might, not be able to get work as a carpenter. This is a very awkward thing for him. And it's not just awkward. It's also potentially damaging to his life and livelihood. So the law here uh, would demand that he either stone her or, according to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, divorce her. That's the other option. Divorce her. So either stoner or divorcer. Both to be done publicly. It's an honor-shame culture. They're both to be done publicly to make sure that Joseph is acquitted of all charges. So this happens fast. This is awkward. It's sudden. Mary has awkward status in this verse too. Look at the way she's described. She's found to be with child. She is called his mother, betrothed to Joseph. She's found to be with child. She's called his mother and she's betrothed to Joseph. She does not have an identity apart from these things. This is who she is. There's no Mary, the daughter of so-and-so and so-and-so. Did you notice? There's no Mary of the line of such-and-such. There's none of that. There's no Mary, the wonderful person who lived in such-and-such village with such-and-such people. There's no Mary, the cousin of Elizabeth. There's none of that here. This is Mary, the betrothed of Joseph, the mother of Jesus. She has no identity here. And in the culture, I want, I'm pointing this out because in the culture, that's how she was viewed. She's viewed as her husband's property. Her husband is Joseph. 
And Joseph is caught off guard in this awkward situation where he is forced to make a very difficult decision. He's very, very, very awkward. And Mary is described, she doesn't have an identity. She's got an awkward status. So, this is an awkward miracle. Note the emphasis at the end of the verse. She's found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. There is no wrong in Mary here. There is no wrong in Joseph here. This is by the Holy Spirit. This is by the Holy Spirit that she's found to be with child. And God performs His miracles His way. Now, this is a very awkward situation, very awkward thing. I want you to understand that often miracles are very awkward. They're not often uh, comfortable. Indeed, our salvation wasn't comfortable, was it? God does not often do things in a way that you are comfortable with. For salvation, what is the basic salvific statement? Jesus Christ, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Forgive me. Jesus, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Forgive me. That is an awkward thing to say. That is an awkward thing to say. It's admission that you aren't good enough. It's admission that you need a Savior. God does not do things in a way that make you comfortable. God does things His way, in His time, with His glory, and His name in mind. He is glorious. And when He does things, they are done His way. Awkward is the way of miracles. And I speak having been one who has had a miracle in his life. Some of you don't know, I was born deaf. And I was born deaf, unable to hear. And uh, I had come to the age where they were going to actually make the note, um, make the note and to, to make it legal, make it a legal thing so I could get all the financial aid or whatever that I needed. And my parents take me to the doctor to have it checked off. They knew I was deaf. They had, had it checked off. I wasn't responding to any sounds of any kind. And they sit me on a desk. And the doctor who's going to perform the test walks around the desk and knocks over something to the side. And I, for the first time, spun and heard. It was a miracle. I wasn't supposed to be able to hear. It was an awkward, super awkward miracle. Because what do you think that doctor did? Looked at my parents and went, what are you doing? Bringing a hearing kid into my office. It's an awkward miracle. My parents overcome, weeping, excited, pick me up, and I'm suddenly hearing everything, evidently. I mean, I was, you know, this big, I don't know. And so, I don't remember it, but that's what they told me. And so, this was the, uh, this was the awkwardness of miracles. Miracles happen often, and when they happen, they're usually awkward. They're not usually comfortable. Indeed, salvation is a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. The fact that we can live in Christian community is a miracle. The fact that the Lord uh, would do the same thing for you in calling you to follow Him in weird and strange ways is a miracle. Joseph and Mary are about to be told to move from one city to another in a very uncomfortable scenario when she's about to give birth they have to travel from nazareth to bethlehem and they have to go there because of some census that god puts in place the timing to get them into the right city for jesus to be born miraculously they have they have to be moved you think that wasn't awkward have you ever traveled with a pregnant woman 
This is super awkward and uncomfortable. And yet, God uses the awkward and uncomfortable for the purpose of His miracles, for the purpose of His people, and for the purpose of His kingdom. Now, we see in Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph uh, has a awkward situation and there's kind of a hopelessness here. He thinks that life is pretty well over, but not wanting to disgrace her and being a righteous man, he wants to send her away quietly. This is this is beautiful. In an honor-shame culture, he should yell from the mountaintops to keep his honor. And yet, what does he do? He lays down his life and his position for his wife. He lays down his life and his position for his wife, taking the blame upon himself. Men of God, this is how we stand as men of God. We stand... In front of our wives, in front of widows, in front of children, in front of the lame and the broken. And we take their troubles upon ourselves. We stand in front of them. We take their shame. We defend them. This is how men of God act. We are righteous because of the way we love others. And no more beautiful picture of that is than the way that you love your wife. That we stand in the way of her shame. So when awkward, hopeless circumstance overwhelms, the righteous behave the way Joseph does. So first, how does he behave? The life over law is the first thing that he does. He puts life over the law. In Deuteronomy 22, verse, chapter 22, verse 20 and 21, she's supposed to be stoned, but the righteous answer is grace. Hesed, right? The Old Testament Chesed, the love, loving, loyal kindness of God in Hosea 6, 6. For I desire Hesed, not sacrifice. Or I desire loving, loyal kindness or mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In an attempt to avoid shaming her and avoid killing her, Joseph takes the quiet route. I'm going to take the shame on myself. I might lose business. I might lose standing in the community. Everybody's going to know, but I'm going to do this quietly so she's not shamed. So she's not shamed. So this kid is not shamed. He chooses life over law. Chooses life over law. If you have trouble with that, don't worry. We're going to talk about stonings in the Old Testament in just a minute. It's going to be very exciting. The second thing is righteous people see other people first. Righteous people see other people first. If you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and made righteous, you know how this is. You know that whenever somebody else is in trouble or doing something wrong, you have this urge of, well, I'm no better than they are. Right? That Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 verse comes into your head. Do nothing out of vain ambition or conceit, but instead consider others better than yourself. Right? This is, this is constant in scripture that Christians who have been made righteous in Jesus Christ and live in that righteousness treat others with a form of equality that is unmatched in the world. That we are just like other people. There is no 
sin greater than some other sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is Jesus Christ and His grace atoning for you. So the righteous person sees other people first. Joseph sees her first. And then three, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11 says, um, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God, before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It's said again in Hebrews. Um, but they are made righteous. We are made righteous by faith, not by obedience to the law. So let's get this one thing through our head. The law does not make a person righteous. No person is made righteous by the law. The law that's not the function of the law. And we'll talk about the purpose of the law in just a minute, but that's not the function of the law. The law does not make a person righteous. The only way to be made righteous is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Joseph evidently had that faith. Joseph evidently had that faith, and we see that because of the way he responds to this. We see that because of the way he responds to this awkward situation. So, what should the punishment be? Stoning. So there's three times that it's done rightly in the Old Testament, three times it's done wrongly in the Old Testament. Right? There's three times that it's done right in the Old Testament, and there's three times that stoning is done wrong. We're taking a momentary aside for stoning, just so you understand the severity of the situation. All through the Old Testament, there are these laws that say, if somebody does something, you're supposed to stone them. You're supposed to drag them out and stone them. Only three times is it recorded in the Bible. So I, I want you to understand the balance here. There's a balance here. God says this is the punishment for sin, and then he delays that punishment until the end. Frequently, he gives grace and mercy and time to people to repent. Over and over and over, he gives grace and mercy and time to people to repent. Only three times in the Old Testament is it recorded that somebody is stoned for the law. Only three times is it recorded. And that's with Achan in Joshua 7. And you remember that story, right? God gives Achan every opportunity to repent. There's this long, drawn-out process to identify Achan. And at any point, Achan could have come forward and said, it was me. It was me. And he never does. And he takes it, he sees it, he takes it, he hides it. Just like we do with sin. Sees it, takes it, covets it, hides it. And it gets him killed. And he gets stoned to death. The second one is the Shulamite's son in Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 16. And then the Sabbath violator in Numbers uh, 15, 32 through 36. Those are the only three times that stonings are recorded. Now, there may have been some other stonings, but I, I want you to get this through your head. This was not a common occurrence. It's not like every Monday they were like, all right, line them up. And then had all of Israel come out. Everybody got your rocks. Yeah. And then everybody's dead. That's not how this worked. That's not what they did. What they did was mercy and grace and patience and tenderness and time and waiting. And then the Lord said, vengeance will be mine. Justice will come. Don't worry. Justice will come. I will repay. I will repay, says the Lord. It will be just. There will be justice. I will repay. Do not take vengeance on your own. It will be mine. And he provides method after method after method of dispensing grace for the people 
of God. The three times it happens against the law of God are with Naboth, uh, Adoniram, and Zechariah. And you can look up those uh, later. Joseph here does not want to do this. He does not want to stone Mary. He does not want her to die. He does not want her to be shamed. He doesn't want to take the secondary route, which is Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and divorce her. He doesn't want to do that either. You see, only wickedness and unrighteousness rejoices in death. Only wickedness and unrighteousness rejoices in death. God says himself, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. And he says even more, I do not delight in death of anyone, in Ezekiel 18, 32. I do not delight in the death of anyone. Because God is a God who loves life. And he delights in his people. He delights in, in humanity. He delights in those he has created. Joseph does not want to shame them. So let's talk for a minute about the purpose of the law. Talk for a minute about the purpose of the law. The law does not make one righteous, nor does it give life. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 through 22, it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture <clears throat> imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law does not give life, nor does it make somebody righteous. Faith in Jesus Christ does those things. The law is there to point out our sin. The law indeed is there to lead people to Christ. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, teacher, or tutor, or schoolmaster. Any one of those words works. The, the law was there to teach us until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Did you notice? It's not justified by obedience, justified by faith. He's justified by Faith. He's justified by faith. That's salvation. That's the gift of God. That salvation comes and we get it in Jesus Christ. So the heart of God here is love and mercy. What makes us righteous? What makes us righteous? The love and mercy of God flowing through us in faith. That's what makes us righteous. That's why Joseph... Is righteous. Micah chapter 6, 8, has he told you, O man, what is good? This, by the way, just I'm pointing this out from the Old Testament. This doesn't change. This is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This truth does not change. That God is about love and mercy over, over punishment. He's always been this way. He's always been gracious. He's always been good. This is not new. This is not a new thing. God didn't try the law for a thousand years and then go, well, Jesus, you're going to have to go down there. That's not what happened. God had this from the beginning. This is the way God has operated. Has he not told you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice or to do righteousness and to love hesed, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The heart of God has always been love 
and mercy. In Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice or keep righteousness and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. And he's talking about Jesus Christ, the righteous one who reveals his righteousness. And how does he do that? He does that by taking your sins upon himself, living a perfectly sinless life, taking your sins upon himself, dying on the cross in your place, taking the wrath of God in your place, and then rising again that you would have life. That's the message that Joseph understands. That's the message that Joseph understands, and he understands it from the Old Testament. He understands that this is the way God worked from the Old Testament, from the beginning. Now, verse 20 and 21. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child has been conceived of her as of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. In the midst of an agonizing decision, she... God shows up. In the midst of an agonizing decision, God shows up to Joseph. Sometimes the Lord appears to us in the midst of our most tense moments. Can you imagine the stress that Joseph was under? Can you imagine this decision where he's going back and forth going, I'm going to lose my livelihood if I stay with this woman. If I keep her, I'm going to lose my livelihood. I'm going to lose my reputation. Everybody's going to know There's going to be murmuring this kid's entire life. There's going to be murmuring this kid's entire life. Maybe, I mean, I don't know what scenarios he thought of. Maybe he thought, I'll move to another city after the child is born. Maybe we'll move to another city. Maybe we'll be safer that way. Maybe this will stop. You know, and hopefully nobody will come to visit. Right? Maybe I'll switch synagogues. I'll go to the the non-denominational synagogue down the street where there's none of this, right? Or they don't know me to know to do this yet. Maybe, maybe he thought that he'd move somewhere else. And yet, in the agonizing moment of this thing, as he's considering what to do and what not to do, how do I save this woman and this kid while protecting myself? How do I make the right decision? Lord, what is the right decision? I don't want her to be stoned. I don't want her to be shamed. I don't want this kid to grow up under a cloud. What do I do? And then... God shows up. This is often, in my experience, how the Lord has done things. He waits for just the right moment. When you're about to sweat blood. And he goes, here I am. And you go, thank God. And he's there. This is the way God tends to work. The Lord appears to us in our most Tense of moments. And he calls Joseph, son of David. Joseph, son of David. Immediately calling back, Joseph, you're of the line of David. You are of the line of David. This is an immediate callback to the prophecy in 2 Samuel. That there will be a son sit on the throne, a son of David, who will be there forever. And Joseph is reminded of the Davidic monarchy in 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 12 through 16. And he says, take Mary. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Note, she suddenly has an identity. Mary. This is 
It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's not Mary, the betrothed of Joseph. It's Mary. She is a person. Joseph has seen her as a person because Joseph was a righteous man. And as we saw, righteous people see other people. They see other people. So God identifies her as Mary. Don't be afraid to take Mary. It's her only identifying marker here. Mary as your wife. You're going to take Mary as your wife. And I just want to take a minute and recognize that God sees you and knows you by name. He knows Mary by name. He knows Joseph by name. He knows you. In the cosmic reality of a God who knows everything, it should astound us that He knows you and me. And He calls us by name. That is a beautiful reality. So God knows you. And He says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And then He gives reasons why. This child is of the Holy Spirit. This child is born of the Holy Spirit. This child is going to be named Jesus. He's the Lord who saves. As you know, the name Jesus is the same. It's, it's Yeshua, right? The same name that is used all throughout Scripture. The Lord saves. And we've got derivatives of that name all through the Old Testament. just want to give you a few. Hosea, Isaiah, and Joshua, all derivatives of the name Jesus. Right? All derivatives of that name Yeshua, right? The, the Hebrew name that literally means the Lord saves. It's a compound word. It's the word Yahweh and the word uh, Shua shoved together. Yeshua is this, this Yahweh saves. That's what it means. So his name literally means the Lord is going to save or the Lord who, in whom is salvation. So Jesus is named the Lord saves. And then, rightly so, he explains he will save his people from their sins. Now, let's just go to one of my favorite verses to talk about this. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. Note, note, God, it doesn't say God shows his law for us. It doesn't, show, it doesn't say God shows his rules for us, his regulations for us. It says what? Love. God shows us love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from by him from the wrath of God. We are saved by him from him. Just in case you missed that. You're saved by God from God's wrath. From the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So what does this text tell us about what we were? This is what we were. We were weak, ungodly, unrighteous, by implication in verse 7, sinners, deserving of wrath in verse 9, enemies. That's our list. That's us. That's our moniker. That's who we were before Christ, after Christ. Who are we because of Jesus? We are loved. We are atoned for. We are justified by His blood. We are saved from His wrath. And we are reconciled in God. So look at that first list again. Weak, ungodly, unrighteous, sinners, deserving of wrath, enemies. That's what describes us. Not in Jesus. In Jesus we are loved, atoned for, justified by His blood, saved from wrath. Reconciled. 
to God. We find peace in this baby that is going to be born to Joseph and Mary. A baby born to Joseph and Mary is going to bring us this peace. Verse 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus was born of a virgin, and it matters. Second, he is God with us. Now, I have a ton of scriptures that talk about God's pattern of being with us, of wanting to be with us, and I printed them for you because there's a ton of them, and they're four four little half pages, and they're in your bulletin. You can look through those all you want. I would encourage you to take those and look through them this week and just delight in the fact that the history of God has been a God who wants to dwell with his people. And let me say that again, just so you get all the words there. A God who wants to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to be a part of things with you. He wants to make his dwelling place with you. These are all scriptures where he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. He wants you. God with us has been something all through Scripture. And He's God with us for what? To save us. He's God with us to save us. He has come to save us. Jesus Christ makes His dwelling place among His people, living in their hearts. John 15, when he's, or John 14, when He's about to leave, what does He comfort His disciples with? He says, don't worry, I'm going to leave my Holy Spirit with you. And he's going to walk with you, and he's going to be in you, and he's going to live with you, and he's going to be right alongside you. And what does he do for the rest of that time period with them? He prays to the Lord, he tells them about how he's the vine, they're the branches. Right before the most intense night of their life, where their Messiah gets taken and crucified, Jesus' response to them is, take heart, I've overcome the world I'm not leaving you alone as orphans in the world. I will walk with you. My spirit I will put within you. And don't worry, I'm coming back. Those three things. Take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm not going to leave you alone. And I'm coming back. He is a God who walks with us and knows us. And I hope you know that. Oh, I hope you know that. And I hope you feel it. He came to save us. And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And took Mary as his wife. That is in italics there in the NASB to tell you that that word Mary is actually not there. Took her as his wife. It's implied that it's Mary. Because if you don't understand that, you don't understand grammar. it's, It's implied that it's Mary. But I want you to see, he took her as his wife. But kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. So we see here in this last two verses the the response of a righteous man. First, he obeys. The response of a righteous man is in obedience. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will obey. This is the book of James, the whole thing. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will obey. You show me your faith by what you say. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Second, faith in respect to the other. Mary here is the other. That's why her name is left out uh, poetically here. That's why Matthew leaves her name out there and just says he took her as his wife. That's why this is a 
Uh, that's why it's written that way. Is so you would see that faith respects the other person, the other in the story, the the one who is in need. Faith respects others and takes care of the other. And then finally, faith in hope here. He names his son Jesus, just like he's told to. Jesus, the Savior of the world. He names him that, just like he is supposed to. So we have here our response in faith to a holy God and a righteous king. One that we would have faith in obedience. Two, that we would have faith in our response to other people. And three, that we would have faith in hope of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Lord, we pray that your glory